All right, we are back, and, and I must confess at this point that Radio Parallax is, is having um, a very minor crisis. No, Mr. Millen, I, I meant a minor crisis. Oh. Here's the deal. We, we, we recorded a, a second segment for this program, which you're hearing right now. Well... Actually, what you're hearing right now is the redo of the second segment that was originally recorded. We didn't think the original version was up to par because yours truly was going out of his way to try and avoid being negative. And so we threw a lot of stuff in that wasn't particularly negative, but I don't think it was particularly interesting. At least, not as much as it should be. So we're doing a redo. Not that you needed to know this, but I think you did need to know this. Because the skipping over of a lot of the negative stuff we'd piled up sort of nevertheless, I think, cast a cloud over what we substituted for it. Therefore, as part of our redo, we're going to go back in and deal with some of the stuff that it really is kind of disturbing and go forward from there. Over the past 20 years on this show, we've been dealing with a lot of the same issues over and over again because, well, they, they didn't go away and they didn't necessarily get better. Back in 2002, for example, we were talking about our concern over uh, election chicanery, which has sort of gone mainstream. But back then we were dealing with real issues, <laughs> election chicanery, not uh, elections stolen from Donald Trump. Like a lot of folks, we were concerned about what had happened in Florida 2000 when uh, basically Jeb Bush stepped in and, um, shall we say, finagled the election for the benefit of his brother, George W. Bush. Way back when we stumbled on a guy that had figured out how this was done, Greg Palace. He's been on the show many times since then. But wouldn't you know it, in spite of the fact that we and a lot of other people were trying to watch the election goings-on like hawks, in 2004, it appears the Republicans stole the election again. And like Penn and Teller, they performed this magic trick while everybody was watching closely to see how it was being done and not figuring it out. Mr. Millen has recently posted some of our earliest programs, and, and I went back and listened to a couple of segments. In particular, Dr. Tony Held, atmospheric scientist, came and spoke with us back in 2002 about the issues surrounding global warming. That was back in 2002, and, and as we look around today, and we are still rec we are recording this on the last day of July in the year 2023. The estimates are that uh, July 2023 is the hottest month on Earth in the last 100,000 years. Anyway, I think it's worth about 90 seconds of hearing what uh, Dr. Held had to say 21 years ago. Talking about the Earth, uh, we have a couple greenhouse gases, uh, including methane, which is uh, a complex hydrocarbon. And we also have carbon dioxide and water vapor and nitrous oxide. So we can take a look at, well, what happens if we increase carbon dioxide? Essentially, what we're doing is we're going to increase the Earth's ability to trap energy and uh, in return, this will be a temperature increase. Right. In a sense, we can think of it as if you're lying on a bed and you have a sheet and a blanket to keep you, uh, keep you warm, um, if you add a sheet or if you add a blanket to your bed, maybe one sheet a year, you can say in the absence of 
qualitative descriptions as to whether you were comfortable last night or whether mm-hmm. you thought it was hot or cold, you know that eventually adding, you know, a hundred sheets over the next hundred years will have an effect yeah. of you at the bottom of this right. pile of sheets as to whether it's hot or cold. Right. And there might be all sorts of other things going on, but if you isolate just that one aspect, you can make some pretty clear-cut descriptions as to what's going to happen. Yeah. And so the environmental approach or... Uh, Uh, people who consider greenhouse gases to be a concern, they typically say, well, forget all that nonsense about all this outlying data or whether this is or is not representative of world cycles. We have a problem. We're adding sheets. We're adding all this carbon into the atmosphere. And uh, it's going to eventually be a problem. And we don't know what's going to happen. So let's not do it. At any rate, the metaphor Dr. Hell was using 21 years ago about adding just one extra sheet to your bed uh, spelled out uh, bad things for the coming decades if we kept adding sheet after sheet. And, well, the bad news is that we've kept adding sheet after sheet over the past couple decades. I decided to pull off some stats, uh, fairly current, actually two years old, from the World Economic Forum, taking a look at CO2 in the atmosphere. And um, here's the bad news. And, and you're listening, you might want to be sitting down for this one. Oh, and, and by the way, the latest data from the Scripps CO2 program, which, me- which measures CO2 levels from uh, Mauna Loa Observatory in Hawaii, has us at 424 parts per million as of June of this year. A year earlier, it was at 421 parts per million, meaning that in just one year, CO2 levels have raised 1% from their pre-industrial levels of 278 parts per million. This is a matter of some concern. I'm not sure what year it was that James Hansen spoke before Congress talking about the dangers of CO2 in the atmosphere and how this is going to cause temperatures to rise. But I know this was being certainly bandied about by 1986. And if you look at the numbers, in 1986, the CO2 levels in the Earth's atmosphere had increased 25% from their pre-industrial levels. 1986 was 37 years ago. In the past 37 years... The increase is now up to 50% from pre-industrial levels. Which means that since we've been talking about global warming, we earthlings have added as much CO2 to the atmosphere as we had since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. Which I think is a pretty good explanation for why it is July 2023 is the hottest year in the last, per estimates, 100, 120,000 years. We've been talking about this in this program for 21 years, and, and I know I wish we had better news to report. That's all. Mr. Millen is vowing to try and uh, obtain Tony Held, our, our good friend, to come back after a long, long hiatus and give us his version of um, what's currently happening. That, I think, would be worth our while and, and very interesting, although one may need to, you know, down a couple of drinks and maybe add some kava kava to the equation uh, before going over that possibly very grim forecast. And since we're in danger of getting too doomy and gloomy on this particular segment, I think what I'm going to do is throw in on a regular basis some rather amusing items from a book titled Weird Things Customers Say in Bookstores by a Jen Campbell. Miss Campbell recorded many, uh, many amusing interactions she had with the customer base that came in to look at these paper books. And um, again, I'm just going to toss a few out. Like this one, an actual exchange. Customer, you know how they say if you gave a thousand monkeys typewriters and then they'd eventually churn out really good writing? 
Bookseller, yes. Customer, well, do you have any books by those monkeys? Let's, let's jump into something else. There's currently a strike going on down in Hollywood, which you might have heard about. The whole debate over this is not something that's necessarily our cup of tea, but I was attracted to a piece that appeared in the Los Angeles Times by Brian Merchant, their technology columnist, which I think is worth excerpting from. Said Mr. Merchant, In one respect, the actors and writers of Hollywood uniting on the picket line in a historic industry-shaking strike is a tale as old as time, one of workers fighting bosses for better pay. Yet the reason this battle is shaping up to be so uniquely intractable and momentous, as you might have gathered from all the headlines about artificial intelligence and streaming economics, is very much of our moment. But, said Mr. Merchant, it's not ultimately technology that's at the root of the problem. It's that studio executives, both new and old, have embraced the powerful and ultimately disastrous magical thinking pumped out of Silicon Valley for the last 10 years. Studio heads are touting the disruptive properties of digital streaming, the transformative power of AI, a brave, unpredictable new world for entertainment writ large, and how writers and actors must adapt to this new future. But just as it did when it was issuing from the tech sector during the 2010s, this talk too often amounts to a smokescreen that lets executives and investors line their pockets and risk leaving workers holding the bag. He goes on to quote Adam Conover. He's a negotiating committee member of the Writers Guild of America. He told Merchant, these companies blew up a successful business model that the public enjoyed that was immensely profitable, and they replaced it with a mishmash that we have now. And now they're refusing to update the contract to reflect these changes. Said Merchant, we need to understand why the 2010s may well be come to be remembered as the great decade of magical thinking for Silicon Valley. Drunk on a truly transformational first decade of the 21st century, one that saw Google, Amazon, and the iPhone and social media storm the world stage, flush tech investors turned their sights toward the next generation of startups eager to see them do the same. The formula for seeking out that next multi-billion dollar unicorn in hindsight was simple. The next wave of startups had to promise that it would disrupt a stale industry with a newer, high-tech, app-driven alternative, promise the potential for vast scale, and promise it would do so fast. So we saw the rise of Uber and Lyft, each of which vowed to revolutionize transit. And we got the likes of WeWork, which set out to usher the future of co-working, and Theranos, which would do the same for at-home blood testing. We know how it ended. Uber and Lyft had never been sustainably profitable. WeWork collapsed dramatically when it became clear it was merely a wildly overleveraged real estate company. And Theranos' future medical technology was outright fraudulent. He goes on to explain, as the 2010s began, Netflix sat somewhere between the old guard and the new. It introduced online streaming in 2007 and had a real product with real demand as well as an established business and its DVD-by-mail rental service. Yet its ambitions were hypercharged by a newfangled sense it could disrupt the old-school Hollywood industry and scale endlessly. There was no reason why everyone in the world with access to a screen couldn't subscribe. He notes how as Netflix turned out to be initially extremely successful, it became the Wall Street darling, with 
all these other companies like Amazon, Disney, Apple, HBO, Paramount, NBC racing to adopt Netflix's business model. Herein lies the trouble. Amid this boom, which for a few years ushered in a gold rush for writers and talent, Netflix et al. adopted another key ingredient of Silicon Valley's approach, secrecy. Data about shows' performance and viewer habits were kept proprietary. We knew only, only what the streamers wanted us to know. That went for customers, performers, writers, and investors. Streaming is an inscrutable black box about which so many stories might be told. Says Merchant, it's a sticking point in the negotiations. Actors and writers on streaming series want a better way to calculate the value of their work, given that the residuals they earn are so much lower than for network or cable shows. The studios have resisted. One Hollywood insider told New York Magazine, the reason nobody really wants to open the books is because if Wall Street got a look, they'd have a collective stroke. Anyway, interesting piece by Brian Merchant in the LA Times. I recommend your listener you check it out uh, fully. And as for as for us, we might want to reach out to Mr. Merchant to see if he wants to come on this program and talk about uh, his viewpoints on tech and Hollywood. It sounds like he's got some things to say. And although we've taken a very uh, skeptical view of, of some of what's coming out of Silicon Valley, here's here's one we do like. Robert McMillan, writing in the Wall Street Journal, reports that you can now hire an AI chatbot to answer unwanted telemarketer calls. One Roger Anderson says he has several thousand customers paying $25 a year for use of his call deflection system called Jolly Roger, which automatically answers calls and talks in circles to frustrate and waste the time of telemarketers and scammers. This guy's my new hero. Me too. Reportedly, Anderson's war on telemarketers began years ago with an answering machine that said hello a few times before hanging up. AI, though, has expanded the possibilities for telemarketer torture. Jolly Rogers starts off with preset expressions like, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your name, or simple grunts of, uh-huh, uh-huh. After a few minutes, the AI software steps in to process the telemarketer's spiel and generate responses which are fed into a voice cloner that carries on the conversation forever or until the callers finally hang up. This guy needs some sort of award. You know, I wonder, Mr. Malone, if this Roger Anderson and his Jolly Roger system uh, is based on, uh, you know, the, um, the commentary that he might have heard from us. Could very well be. Oh, and along similar lines, we would note that comedian Sarah Silverman and some novelists are suing the Bay Area tech firms over their AI book capture. Silverman and two novelists claim Menlo Park-based Meta and San Francisco-based OpenAI violated copyright and other laws by ingesting their books and those of thousands of other authors to train their artificial intelligence software. I always like the, the verb train. It's, it's training the software. The software still has access to all of this. Train, I would say train and retain. Hey, Matthew Butterick, a lawyer representing the authors alleged that OpenAI and Meta have landed on a business strategy of copyright infringement on a massive, unprecedented scale. OpenAI did not respond to requests for comments, and Meta also declined to comment on this. We're, we're going to follow that story. Another story I'm going to mention briefly that we're, we're probably going to be forced to follow is this little matter of a, of a, of a private, an Army private named Travis King, who evidently, after serving 47 days in a South Korean prison for assault, had been released into U.S. custody. He was set to be flown to Fort Bliss, Texas for military discipline, but he decided he had a way around that. Private King 
decided to slip away from the, uh, the tentacles of the army by crossing the border into North Korea. Now, over the years, there have been numerous persons who have crossed the border from the Koreas, but it generally goes from north to south. In fact, back in November of 2017, North Korean soldiers fired 40 rounds at one of their colleagues as he raced toward the south. The soldier got hit five times before he was found beneath a pile of leaves on the southern side of Panmunjom. He survived, and he's now in South Korea. Meanwhile, Private King is in North Korea. Some commentators have reported that his actions do not appear to reflect clear thinking. You know, dear listener, we had Tony Wheeler, uh, the founder of the Lonely Planet book series on this show some years back. We, he was talking about uh, his book, Badlands. He wrote actually several books about going to some of the worst places or least desirable places on Earth. And uh, one of them was North Korea. He had some funny things to say about his experiences there. And if you didn't catch it, you may want to go to our archives at radioparallax.com and dial that one up. And uh, I truly received an email I wasn't too happy about recently from the Planetary Society pointing out that uh, the U.S. Senate is proposing legislation that would cut NASA's budget for the first time in a decade. In addition, both House and Senate spending bills would cut nearly a half billion dollars from NASA's science programs, with the Senate specifically gutting the Mars sample return efforts of NASA to bring back parts of the Martian crust for study here on Earth. Planetary Society hopes to fight back, and if you're interested, they're going to hold a day of action in Washington, D.C. on September 18th, which will certainly provide an opportunity for those of us opposed to this to amplify our voices and stand together with fellow space advocates. We want to note that, conversely, the the Pentagon is, is not getting its budget cut. In fact, it's being handed an extra $28 billion for reasons no one can quite discern. And kind of irked about this was Senator Bernie Sanders, who spoke out in an opinion piece, which I think I'll quote from, said Sanders, the U.S. Senate's now debating an $886 billion authorization bill. Unless there are major changes to the bill, I intend to vote against it. Here's why. As everyone knows, our country faces enormous crises. As a result of climate change, our planet's experiencing unprecedented and rising temperatures. Along with the rest of the world, we need to make major investments to transform our energy systems away from fossil fuels and into more efficient and sustainable energy sources. Or the life we lead our kids and future generations will become increasingly unhealthy and precarious. Our healthcare system is broken. While the insurance companies and pharmaceutical industry make hundreds of billions in profit, 85 million Americans are uninsured or underinsured. Our life expectancy is declining, and we have massive shortages of doctors, nurses, mental health practitioners, and dentists. He cites a few more items and said, these are some of the crises our country faces, and we're not dealing with them. And then there's defense spending. That's a whole other story. The proposed military budget that the Senate is now debating would increase defense spending $28 billion, an all-time record. And the overall total is well over $900 billion if you simply factor in the nuclear weapons spending through the Department of Energy. Said Sanders, I will oppose this bloated defense budget, saying more military spending is unnecessary. The $886 billion in defense spending agreed in the debt ceiling deal matches the Pentagon's budget requests and is more than sufficient to protect the United States and our allies. Second, the Pentagon cannot keep track of the dollars it already has, leading to massive waste, fraud, and abuses in the sprawling military-industrial complex. 
The Pentagon accounts for about two-thirds of all federal contracting activity, obligating more money every year than all civilian federal agencies combined. Yet, the Department of Defense remains the only major federal agency that cannot pass an independent audit. Last year, the department was unable to account for over half of its assets. Say that again. Last year, the department was unable to account for over half of its assets, which are in excess of $3.1 trillion. Ouch. Well, Bernie Sanders may vote against it, but what do you bet, dear listener, that it's going to get passed anyway? All right, let's take a jump back into our weird things customers say in bookstores. Such as, customer, do you have Campbell's Soup for the Soul? Or, do you have Fiddler on a Hot Tin Roof? Or, customer, I don't know why she wants it, but my wife asked for a copy of the Dinosaur Cookbook. Bookseller, the Dinosaur Cookbook? Customer, oh, that must be it. I wondered what she was up to. Yeah, we have to admit, you're never going to get far with a Dinosaur Cookbook. I mean, where where are you going to get fresh dinosaur these days? And I know, let me hedge up before you start. I know that some of you are going to point out that, well, you know, birds actually are dinosaurs that survived. And yes, that's true. So I guess technically you can get freshly cooked dinosaur at Kentucky Fried Chicken. At this point in time, I think we need to take a jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week a week or two ago for misspeaking after Vice President Kamala Harris touted the environmental benefits of, quote, when we invest in clean energy and electric vehicles and reduce population. The White House then stepped in to say that Harris meant to say reduce pollution, not population. Although we'd like to point out here at Radio Parallax that reducing population would be a good idea. One day last month, we would note that it was a a bad week and day and probably month for work ethic with the news that an Oklahoma gas station clerk was charged with asking a friend to rob the station so he could go home early. Isaiah Jones's friend allegedly handed him a note reading, give me all your money or I will shoot you. Jones handed over the money and then clocked out. Anyway, continuing along, according to The Week magazine, it was an ugly week uh, during one of the weeks in June for Bedside Manor after a report came out that some doctors are now using ChatGPT to help them break the bad news to terminal patients. One suggested exchange, I wish there were more and better treatments, and I hope in the future there will be. I guess that's an improvement over the prototype of uh, our first advice to you is do not buy green bananas. And also, according to The Week magazine, it was an ugly week. It was a very ugly week, and about the third week in June for Zoom, described as an automated pizza company. It used robots to make its pies inside delivery trucks. Well, it had to shut down. Launched with nearly $500 million in venture capital funding, Zoom and its robots never apparently mastered the art of delivering a hot pizza without the cheese sliding off. I don't know, Mr. Millen. If you can put a man on the moon, don't you think you can deliver a pizza where the cheese doesn't slide off? One would think. Anyway, in the few minutes we have left, I guess we'll delve into a little bit of politics. My, my local uh, 
assemblyman in California sent me a notice of the wonderful things he's doing, which he, which he very much wants me to know about. Among the wonderful things are millions of dollars he freed up to fund a local homeless navigation center about a mile from me. Now, a homeless navigation center is apparently where they have beds and accommodations and, I don't know, kind words for people who are without a residence. A navigation center was established uh, about a mile from me. This has resulted in a marked uptick in the number of persons walking around, often without their shirts, hollering at people who don't seem to be there, carrying out objects that, uh, that would appear to have no utility to them or anyone else. Anyway, if my local assemblyman wants to fund uh, homeless navigation centers, I just hope he would pick ones that are really close to where he lives. Maybe he can reach out to those Yimby people, yes, in my backyard, and see if he can work something out. Meanwhile, in the North American Center for Homeless Navigation, also known as the City of San Francisco, we have initial reports that bringing in the CHP, and, and was it the National Guard and CHP to come in and help clean up drug dealing in the city streets has done nothing. Mayor London Breed is not giving up. She has tapped a neighborhood leader and real estate agent, oddly enough, to serve on San Francisco's new Homeless Commission after her first choice withdrew in the wake of controversy over him improperly billing taxpayers for personal expenses. Anyway, not optimistic that this homeless panel is going to accomplish a great deal. I guess, I guess we'll just have to see how that goes. Now, there's some things I don't quite understand about Mayor London Breed. She's the mayor of San Francisco, so it seems odd that a bill co-sponsored by the mayor got approved by the California State Legislature and got signed by Governor Gavin Newsom into law. The law concerns three Bay Area counties, wherein drivers may soon receive automated tickets from speed cameras, thanks to a bill co-sponsored by the mayor of San Francisco. Under this new proposal, drivers speeding more than 11 miles an hour over the speed limit in areas monitored by this system would receive warning notices for a first offense and tickets for further violations. The cameras would be installed in an area with frequent accidents, areas with frequent street racing incidents, and school zones. Boy, I sure have some doubts about this. Driving around my local neighborhood, I've noticed that um, many of the speed limits are absurdly low. While it's true, I have numerous jackasses roaring down my rural street at too high of a speed. A mile or so away, there's a 35-mile-an-hour speed limit on a stretch of highway that nobody drives under 45 on because there's no reason to. Anyway, if you have an opinion about getting a ticket automatically for going 11 miles an hour of the speed limit, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. It's revenue collection. I'm just surprised they haven't tried to implement this years and years ago. So you think it's a good idea? No, I'm just surprised they haven't tried to implement this years ago. Anyway, I think all those red light violation cameras are, uh, in, in intersections are, are more for revenue generating than public safety, but I don't know. Anyway, I do have some advice from Mayor Breed in San Francisco. Why don't you see what you can do about the homeless problems before you start you know, talking about putting up automatic ticket-generating robots around East Bay counties? All right, let's, let's go back to uh, some weird things customers say in bookstores. Here's a reported exchange that I like. Customer, I'm looking for a signed copy of any book by Marcel Proust as a gift for my daughter. Bookseller, I'm sorry, signed Proust material is very rare. 
but I can show you the books of his that we have in stock, customer after paying. Do you have a pen? Bookseller hands him a red pen. Customer opens book to title page and writes, I hope you enjoy my book, Marcel Proust. Mr. Miller's just weighed in to point out that uh, technically it is more correctly Marcel Proust. That's the proper pronunciation. Well, I'm prude to be corrected. How about this one? Customer, do you have any books containing passages which would be suitable to read out at a funeral? Bookseller, sure, I'll help you look. Customer, thanks. Bookseller, and I'm sorry for your loss. Customer, well, don't worry too much about it. It's just my daughter's guinea pig. And finally, this one. Customer, do you have an easy version of Moonlight Sonata for piano? Bookseller, we have a box of sheet music by the music book section. I'll, I'll have a look. Customer, thanks. Bookseller, yep. Here's a Moonlight Sonata for grade two. Customer, and that's easy? Bookseller, compared to the real thing, yes. Customer, so I should be able to play it, yeah? Bookseller, I don't know. How long have you been playing? Customer, oh, I don't know how to play. I just thought I'd try. Bookseller, right. Can you read sheet music? Customer, well, sure. It's just the alphabet, isn't it? Yeah, we're sorry to report it isn't as easy as ABC. At any rate, this program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I am your faithful servant, Douglas Everett. And we hope to talk to you again real soon.